You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks for joining me for episode 73 of the murder in my family. In this episode, we dive into the oldest case ever covered on this show, the February 1922 murder of a little girl that shocked the city of Baltimore, and remains unsolved nearly 100 years later. We'll get into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend of the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderofmyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. Thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One more note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Myra Claire Stone was born in 1914 to Herbert W. Stone Jr. and Lita Woodruff Stone. Her family quickly began referring to the little girl by her middle name, Claire. Claire had two younger brothers, and the family resided at 3163 Almora Avenue in Baltimore, Maryland. On the morning of February 21, 1922, Lida Stone kissed her 8-year-old daughter, Claire, and gave her four pennies. She told her daughter to board the trolley at Bel Air and Almora Avenues. But instead of taking the trolley, Claire decided to walk to school instead. It was cold that morning, so Lida made sure to button up Claire's green wool coat, and she made sure that her daughter was wearing a warm hat called a tam o'shanter. She pulled the little girl's hair back with a butterfly bow ribbon. When Claire's father, Herbert, arrived home from work later that day, 
he found his wife lie to frantic with worry because Claire had never come home from school. Herbert called the family physician, Dr. George McLean, and together the two men notified the police and local newspapers. Photographs of Claire Stone were in the next morning's newspapers. A train engineer told the police he saw a man walking with a young girl along railroad tracks around the time Claire disappeared. Another witness came forward, a neighbor of the Stone family, and she claimed she saw two women who looked like foreigners pulling a little girl near North Avenue and Hartford Road, about a mile and a half from the Stone home. This occurred on the day after Claire disappeared. The two women were part of a caravan of gypsies who recently showed up in the area. Police tracked those women down, but they did not find Claire with them. Joseph Frey, an employee at the coal yard at Sinclair Lane and Bel Air Road, who knew Claire Stone, said he saw her at about 8.55 a.m. on the morning she disappeared. He spoke to her, and she smiled. Then Claire crossed the street towards Sinclair Lane. That's when Frey lost sight of her. He was uncertain of the clothing Claire was wearing, but he was positive that it was her. Detectives believed that Claire might have used a shortcut to get to school because she was running late that morning. To make it to school on time, they theorized that Claire had cut through Vonderhorst Lane to save some walking time to North Avenue along Bel Air Road and then headed west on North Avenue to the school, which was located on Washington Street. According to articles written in the Baltimore Sun, at the time Claire disappeared, Vonderhorst Lane was lined with a few frame homes and several private garages, garages where men would operate businesses and work out of. Several of the garages were open with men inside them. Detectives thought that maybe someone had seen Claire, but no one had. Claire's family was grief-stricken and on pins and needles as they waited for news of the little girl's fate. Sadly, at 3.30 p.m. on February 22, 1922, Claire's body was found in Dungan's Woods near Baltimore's area known as Orangeville. An autopsy later revealed Claire had been drugged possibly with chloroform, which had caused her death. After she was dead, her killer shot her in the head with either a twenty-two caliber or twenty-eight caliber gun. There were no bloodstains found in Duncan Woods, which told police Claire had been killed elsewhere and her body dumped there. On the day Claire's body was found, a neighbor of the Stone family was arrested in connection to the case but released shortly afterwards when authorities confirmed his alibi for the time Claire went missing. A man named Frank Olomboski, who resided on Duncan Lane north of Orangeville, told motorcycle patrolman Leonard Hendricks that he met a man walking on Duncan's Lane at 3.30 p.m. on February 23rd, within 200 yards from where Claire's body was found. The man seemed very nervous and asked what direction Philadelphia was. Frank directed the man down 11th Street to Philadelphia Road and told him to turn to his left. Frank described the man as about 25 years old, with blue eyes, a light complexion, and wearing a black overcoat. Officer Hendricks was the first person to arrive at Dungan's Woods where the body was found. Another witness, Babette Willem of Orangeville, told authorities that on February 22nd, she heard an automobile grinding and crunching in the mud on Duncan's Lane near the railroad tracks. Other residents heard the same sound. They said there was about 20 minutes of silence before they heard the grinding noise once again. The car then drove towards 11th Street. 
Babette said she later saw a man driving a motorcycle with a sidecar attached toward the woods. She noticed something was in the sidecar with papers piled over it. The man raced north on 12th Street and then turned sharply into the road leading into Dungan's Woods. She then saw the man a short while later, but whatever was in the sidecar was now gone. The man got stuck in the mud and a couple of small boys helped him get his motorcycle out. Babette got a good look at the man. He was about 25 years old, around 5 foot 7 and heavy set, with light hair and a round chubby face. He was wearing a tan suit and a brown cap. The motorcycle he was driving was brown with a black stripe. A little after 9 p.m., Babette saw a light in the woods near where Claire's body was found. She said it appeared to be a lantern because sometimes it was held high and other times it was lower. A few days later, two police officers arrested a man named Adolf E. Widener, who was 29 years old, for Claire's murder. This was the result of a self-proclaimed psychic medium telling police to look there in the woods. She eventually went on to tell them that Widener was the killer. The officer's superiors were furious over the matter and released the man soon afterwards. By March 1st, 1922, another detective was brought in to investigate Clearstone's murder. William Flynn had been with the Secret Service for 20 years and worked five years as its chief. After investigating, he concluded that Claire was murdered at another location other than Duggan's Woods and that her murderer had hidden her body in a short, narrow box. He based his theory on the way Claire's body was positioned when found. Had she been murdered in Duncan's woods, her legs and arms wouldn't have been set in a cramped, unnatural position, the way that she was found. Officer Heinrich said that when he arrived where Claire's body was, he saw that her knees were bent and pointing towards her chin. Her head was tilted forward with her chin against her chest. Her arms were flexed and pressed close to her sides. Flynn thought to himself, this is the position her body might have wound up in, had she been thrown from a motorcycle sidecar, for example. Flynn also detailed that Claire was not sexually assaulted, but that the killer might have attempted it. He also believed Claire Stone knew the person who murdered her, and that he may have offered her a ride to school. On March 4, 1922, Adolf Plitt allegedly confessed to Claire Stone's murder. Several other schoolgirls had been approached by a man on their way to school. Police brought the girls to the police station to identify Pitt as the man who approached them. However, all of the girls said Pitt was not the same man. It was revealed a short time later that Plitt had dementia, and he had an alibi at the time Clara was killed. Despite the eyewitness accounts, some leads and clues to go on, and a couple potential suspects, no one was ever charged in Clara's murder, and her case went cold. This old murder case has been reviewed from time to time in the years since Clear was killed, but no new developments have come from it. And while this case is a forgotten one in Baltimore by some, to others Clear's case remains on their minds. One of those people who has not forgotten the case is Clear's great-niece, Noelle. She joined me to discuss the nearly century-old murder. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there's been times when I wanted to go out and do something, but didn't make it because things I had on my mind kept me from doing what I wanted to do. 
If you find yourself in a similar situation, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from depression, stress, and anxiety, to family conflicts, sleep issues, and more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hi, Noel, and thanks for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your great aunt Claire's case with us. Thank you for having me. You reached out to me about your uh, great aunt's case, saying it was an old one, mm-hmm. and you weren't kidding. Uh, your great <laughs> your great aunt was just eight years old when she was killed in 1922 in the outskirts of Baltimore, Maryland. What initially mm-hmm. got you interested in Claire's uh, case? Well, for my family, it was always kind of um, a a secret in a way, like an open secret. I don't really remember uh, ever learning about it. It was like something that I had always known. But as I had grown older, I was curious about what actually happened because uh, the stories that I was given from my mother kind of varied a little bit. Um, So I kind of looked into what actually happened to her and what what the real story is behind um, her murder. And I think like I've just been interested in true crime as well, uh, naturally and like human behavior, but then with um, her murder and how it's affected our family generationally, uh, it just kind of put a, I don't want to say a face to a name because I never met her, but um, it made her more humanized, I guess, like knowing somebody who, or knowing of someone and having that connection um, made her situation more humanized. It was, and I've talked to people that have had, you know, family members that were, died years and years before, not maybe not mm-hmm. as, as far back as, as Claire's, but, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes in the family there, he talked a little bit about, sometimes they weren't talked about at all. Sometimes people through every generation were very familiar with the case. What would you say yeah. the total, uh, family level of discussion was about the case, uh, as far back as you can remember? Well, as far as I can remember, um, it was kind of like, uh, an, like we all knew that it had happened, but my mother didn't really like talking about it. 
or the actual details, especially when we were children ourselves, um, that was really painful for her. I think um, my mother's grandmother, so Claire's mom, never talked about it um, and never talked about it with uh, any of the siblings or my mother. Um, And they knew not to bring it up to her whatsoever. But my uh, other, my other grandmother who was married, she married um, my grandfather, Jack, who was Claire's um, brother. She talked a lot about it because it was, she didn't have the same connection. So she would talk a lot kind of like gossiping and like kind of the, the gruesome details of what had happened. And I think because my grandmother did that, um, my mom didn't like talking about uh, Claire or what had happened to her, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a sad story behind the case. She was found yeah. dead after walking to school, and I read that for years following her murder. <laughs> Parents warn their kids mm-hmm. to be careful or they might wind up like Claire Stone. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, we're upset by child murders today in the news, but I think we've become maybe used to it as news travels quickly and on social media and stuff. But I imagine at 98 years ago, people must have been in complete shock when that murder happened. Yeah, it uh, affected everybody at the time. Um, it was very sensationalized. I know that it was in like the Associated Press and was uh, her story was printed in newspapers across the country. And it really was kind of an awakening for uh, particular particularly kids that live in cities that to be more careful and be more careful of strangers because it was, it really was unheard of. She was walking to school um, in the morning. So it happened in broad daylight on the busy street and she just disappeared uh, for a day. And then they found her body the day, a day later. Um, And I think it was just so shocking to everyone that this could actually happen. Um, to a little girl. Yeah. Tragic then, tragic now. Um, when, when you're going back trying to research stuff, obviously you mentioned some mm-hmm. newspaper articles. How difficult mm-hmm. is it to find stuff on a case that's almost 100 years old? <laughs> and where, and where well, do you find that stuff? So the Baltimore Sun um, really did a lot of reporting on Claire Stone. So I found a lot uh, through the Baltimore Sun's old archives, through like newspapers.com. So she was was missing on February 22nd, and they found her body uh, February 23rd. And every day until mid-March, she was like on the front cover of the Baltimore Sun some other development in the case had happened um, and some crazy things had happened in between. And it was, became really like a sensational story where I was surprised about the reporting because they did give like gruesome details. It was like a police report in the newspaper. And yeah, I don't, I can imagine you would not find that these days, but they like would post like theories of who might be behind it and what was found at the crime scene and all of the the details um, were just printed in the newspaper for everybody to read. And I think that was 
particularly hard for my uh, great-grandparents. Um, I know that her funeral, there was at least 4,000 people that came. Um, and there are pictures again in the newspaper in the Baltimore Sun of like crowded streets, um, people not able to get through um, the street by car because there was just so many people and they lived in um, a kind of a row house and uh, the streets were completely covered um, because her funeral was held at their house. So they had people coming in to the house to view her and, and leaving. Um, and it was just like a big, a big deal for Baltimore and for that time period. If you can, would you be able to walk us through the, the, the case as far as you understand it from, from that morning, uh, until the, the, the latest, uh, results uh in the investigation <laughs> okay yeah um so what had happened was it was a tuesday morning um again it was february 22nd uh, 1922 and my so claire had gotten up she was running a little bit late because my grandfather um was a baby at the time and he was sick so he had uh, the whole family had stayed up because he was crying all night. So Claire was running late in the morning to, to go to school. She was probably about an hour late. Um, and because she was late, my great grandmother gave her four pennies uh, to get the streetcar um, so that she could get to school more on time. And so she left um, and she left with, it was cold. So she had a jacket, a green jacket, um, a hat and a ribbon in her hair um, and her book bag. And she left and she missed the streetcar and she decided to just walk. Uh, and school was about um, 10 blocks away. So it wasn't uh, that far. She usually did that trek without the streetcar. And she actually knew a lot of the, the store owners um, on that trek. So uh, a coal maker... Uh, saw her and a mechanic saw her pass and on her way to school. And after that, she just disappeared. So she didn't come home that day. And my grandmother took my, uh, my grandfather or my great grandmother took my grandfather who was a baby and um, my uncle who at the time was four. And she took him to the school to try to find Claire, but Claire wasn't there. She hadn't made it that whole day. And at that point she called my great grandfather. Um, and then they started searching and then they called the police. And at the time they actually thought a gyp like gypsies had kidnapped her. So <laughs> they um, like ran down some gypsies and were like trying to, uh, find Claire because I guess there was a report that like a blonde little girl had gone with gypsies or something. Anyway, they couldn't find her um, that night and they continued searching and a lot of people in the neighborhood started searching and then across Baltimore started searching because so she was missing like my grandmother recognized that she was missing at around 2.30 is when she called my grandfather and already in the evening, that was printed in the newspaper in the Baltimore Evening Sun. 
So already everybody knew in, in the community what was going on at that point. So there was a huge search that happened um, into the next day and in a wooded area that is about two miles away from school. It's called Duncan Woods at the time. I think now it's like parking lots or something. But um, they, some some people, um, I believe it was a man had found her body and called the uh, police. But because all of these people were searching for her, um, they ended up contaminating the crime scene right away. So people were just lined up um, at the crime scene and just took, I, I don't know how to say that right, but took all the evidence away from the crime scene. So when the police actually got there and, and taped it off, uh, a lot of the evidence was already lost at that point in time. Um, but what they did find was that she didn't have muddy shoes. So they assumed that somebody had probably taken her to a wooded area, like uh, picked her up and, t- and took her there. And she was also um, shot in the head. And the ribbon that was in her hair uh, there was actually a bullet hole that went right through the ribbon. Um, and it was just a single shot that ended her life. Um, and really, other than that, there wasn't a lot of evidence to go on. Um, so what they had thought was that she might have recognized somebody or knew somebody, and they offered uh, to give her a ride to school and she went um, in the car with them and was murdered at some point that night. And then in the morning, uh, somebody brought her to the woods and dropped off her body. But there was a lot of different theories because um, they, they really heavily um, investigated it for the time. They had like 20 police officers that were investigating and they had famous police officers or famous detectives from around the country come in. It was like a a big deal within the Baltimore County, obviously. So they had the whole police station investigating her murder. And there was actually a newspaper article saying like they they expect it to be closed really quickly. Um, They had like famous investigators come from across the country. And I know like the director of the secret service came to help investigate. Um, But I think what had happened was because there was a lot of interference within the crime scene, they weren't able to get any like shoe prints or, and, or get any sort of like physical evidence that way. And nobody saw anything, which I think is just kind of, insane because it had happened on a busy road in the middle of the day and nobody had seen anything. Um, But after that had happened, so her funeral was really highly publicized. There was about uh, 4,000 people that attended her funeral in like this small row house um, where my grandmother lived. And it was almost a parade had happened when they took her body to the graveyard that was kind of nearby. Um, it was just a huge deal 
for everybody in the community. Um, so much so that because it was publicized so every single day for almost a month, um, people started saying that they had killed her when they didn't. So like a lot of false accu- accusations happened uh, during that time. Um, I know a man said that he had uh, committed the murder and he had found they found out that he was just trying to get in the newspaper and he ended up going to like the insane asylum after that. And then um, a few months later, another person said that they had committed the murder and they uh, had accused somebody else of, of doing it. Um, but there was no evidence that that actually happened. And they uh, took their own life after that just a lot of kind of drama in between uh, after the invest or after the murder happened. Um, and it, I think a lot of that has to do with the way that it was publicized so that uh, people just kind of got a hold of her story and then um, would use that for different means, if that makes any sense. Um, so yeah, that was, they had that development. Um, and then it kind of went cold for a while. They had like certain people of interest. Um, they arrested, I think, seven people in between, but all let them go because there was no evidence showing that they committed the murder. One of those was like uh, the neighbor. Another one um, was the coal maker who had was the last person to see Claire, um, but they had let them go. And then in the 50s, some somebody said, a, a man said that his dad committed the murder um, and they opened up the case again. And at that point, it's been almost 40 years that it had been closed. Um, so they opened the case again and they tried to investigate. And the man who said that his father committed the murder, his father had passed away. Um, and the man said that they still had a gun, but they found that the gun was kind of lost. So they didn't really have any connection that they could make. So it just remained unsolved to, to this day. But the creepy kind of thing about it was, again, with the publicity, that in the 50s and the 60s, they actually, like, uh, took pictures of her clothes and the ribbon that I was talking about with the bullet hole um, and her shoes, and they would post that on the newspaper. So my family, um, my great-grandmother they moved away right away from Baltimore. They moved within uh, six months after Claire was murdered. Um, And I think whenever these kind of newspaper articles came out, because they tended to come out once like every five years or so, it just hurt the family a lot to see that sort of, like that sort of information about somebody. Was there ever you know. any kind of motive established or any mo- theory about a motive put out? No, um, there really wasn't. It's just kind 
it's just a mystery. Nobody knows why this would happen. There was a theory that she was accidentally shot in the woods because it was actually like a hunting um, woods. They had some hunters, but there's no reason why she would be there to begin with because she was on her way to school. Um, So that theory is kind of shot down because it doesn't really make any sense. And also the woods are in the opposite direction from where she was headed. Um, So really nobody knows why this would happen. I think that kind of contributed to the fear that was placed on the community and in my family too, to, you know, not trust strangers or not go out on your own, um, to always be kind of weary because bad things can happen and you can't predict it. And it makes no sense. Well, and Again, we're talking uh, about a hundred-year-old case almost. Mm-hmm. Who obviously mm-hmm. did this is dead, so there yeah. wouldn't be yeah. any kind of arrest. Mm-hmm. But after all this time, mm-hmm. what would your family like to see, short of an arrest? Well, it's just like it's unfinished, and it's always been unfinished. Um, and uh, yeah, we know that the person is dead and I don't think that, I think that the Baltimore police department, they still have her, her like clothes and her, um, and the evidence that they collected, but I don't think that they're able to probably get any DNA off of that. And if they did it, you know, probably wouldn't be (laughs) accurate DNA. Um, so I think like we've all come to terms that it's just something that will literally never be solved that we'll never understand. But I think for me, I, it was such a big case at the time and a part of like Baltimore history that I feel I want people to know of her and who she was. Cause I, it just makes me really sad to think that no one really knew Claire like they knew the case and uh, the horrible things that had happened to her but not who she was as a person and she existed and she had a family and she liked fashion she had just gotten a bob like a few days before or a few weeks before she was murdered and in the 1920s that was like you know cool to have a bob um you know she was just a kid and it working with kids um, I don't have kids of my own, but working with kids, it just, I feel like people sh- uh, should know about her. Like she shouldn't just be forgotten um, completely. And you bring up a good point uh, with that. Um, mm-hmm. y- you've had to learn what you know about her through family and stories and, and <laughs> people that were old enough to remember her. What, what other kinds of things did you find out about her? Uh, any stories about her? Or what kind of kid she was? Well, it's funny because the, the newspapers at the time were like, she was very well-developed. And I'm like, you should not say that because she's eight years old. Come on. <laughs> but she really the did like... The newspapers back um, then were full of inappropriate uh, comments and, and things like that, for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They said there was so much that someone was like her chubby hand was outstretched. 
um, for the gunners, you know, they just, they like to make it juicy and publicized. Yeah. But she actually really liked, um, fashion and she, uh, liked to wear, um, nice, like, uh, fashion clothes and be ahead of her time in a way. (laughs) Um, they said like her teacher said that she was very quiet, um, and intelligent. And I think that that's probably true. She was the only girl. So, uh, at the time, um, and I think my great grandmother really doted upon her and she was also the oldest at the time too. Um, so I think she was just like a happy, a happy girl, but it's hard to, to know for sure because in my family, like my great grandmother and my great grandfather, I they never talked about her. It was almost like she never existed to them. I mean, in a, like I know that they felt them, but they never verbalized how she was um, to anyone. So it's hard to piece together who she really was. But from what I can tell, um, she was just. Uh, a happy, smart, intelligent um, girl that she liked to play with dolls and she liked fashion and she took care of her brother. Um, and just a typical eight-year-old girl, you know, that didn't deserve any of this to happen to her. Again. It, it, mm-hmm. Whether it's 2020 or 100 years ago, it takes a very uh, cruel person to murder a child like that. Um yeah. Was there anyone that had a beef with with um, Claire's family or anyone that might have a reason to want to see them in, in pain or suffering? No, there really wasn't. I know that um, they had arrested the neighbor, but I think that was just because he, like, he had contact with her. Um, my... My grandmother was a stay-at-home mom, and my grandfather was an like an engineer. So they had no enemies or anything like that. Um, there was really no reason why this would happen. It just did. Wow, and it's and uh, that's what's kind of spooky about the whole thing is you know that that person kept living, and. I can't imagine what else they might have done within their lifetime that we don't know about. Oh yeah. Because if they're, they're sick enough to Mm -hmm. do this to one child, who knows what other things they could have done over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, that sounds terrible, but other child murders, they tried to connect Claire to, to them, but they were not able to do so. Um, and they do think that it was probably someone that she knew because she got in a, they think that she got in a vehicle with them to get a ride to school. And she wouldn't have done that if she didn't know them. And maybe that mm-hmm. perhaps she had knew something that they were afraid she would share or tell someone about and they didn't want that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because of the way that she was killed um, with the gunshot that something might've happened. They, you know, they didn't say that she was sexually assaulted. They didn't believe that she was sexually assaulted. Um, 
but I guess like who who knows? I mean, maybe that had happened and she recognized them and they didn't want her to tell anybody. I yeah, just uh, it, it's something tough. that we'll never know, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough when you can't find the motive for a crime that makes it harder. Usually if you can find the motive, you can find a, a, a good suspect. Um, but when there doesn't yeah. appear to be a motive and it just seems random, that's the hardest case, un- unfortunately. Yeah. So, and, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about them still having clothes and other evidence. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it may be a long shot to test any of that stuff, <laughs> yeah. but you never know. Um uh, I've I've actually heard of very old cases that they've tried to go back and see what they have, what they can find. Has there been any effort, or has your family asked them if they could do some kind of um, work, or allow you to bring it to a lab that would do some kind of work? You know, I haven't, but I was I've been thinking about requesting that to see if there's any way um, I, we can I can get some of the records. I know that um, a few years ago there was a TV show called or a documentary called The Keepers, which is about like another cold case in Baltimore um, that was done Sister Catherine, and it was done in uh, the '60s. Mm-hmm. And because of that documentary, there was a little bit of interest in Claire's case because Claire's the other like famous unsolved Baltimore case that happened. So at the time, the article that I had sent you um, was from, I think, 2017, and that's the last kind of reporting that anybody has done about Claire's case. Um, But I haven't checked in yet. I know that it's not an active case on, like, the cold uh, case unit. It's not active, um, but it's just kind of, I, I assume that her things are just in a box somewhere, kind of hidden away. But I would like to get our, maybe not get them, um, but get some of the records and the evidence that I could. And, you know, uh, familiar DNA is such a big thing now that if there was a way to solve this, that would be um, how to do it. But I just think that all of her stuff is probably contaminated because in the pictures that I was talking about where they like posted um, her clothes and things, officers were just like touching them and holding them out. Like there was no uh, protection at the time. So I just don't think anything has been uh, safeguarded, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's a, to get that's that a shame DNA. because a hundred years mm-hmm. ago, obviously they didn't know about DNA. They didn't know about yeah. handling it mm-hmm. versus uh trying to keep mm-hmm. protected but yeah at this point though it, it who knows it may be just worth a shot the you know, no one's alive possibly that could have done it so they may not object mm-hmm. to to at least your family trying to do something with it and just for your own peace of mind so you know yeah. um and just see where that goes but uh very frustrating to hear about such a young girl murdered in such a, a cold and callous way um yeah that's very senseless yeah it's a a very sad and fascinating Mm -hmm. case um and Mm -hmm. i I really appreciate you talking about it and sharing it with us i wish you again i don't know how much more you can dig up i know your work must be cut out for you on a hundred year old case but i I hope that you have some kind of luck uh digging more stuff up if it's possible 
Yeah, I'd like to. I've I've gotten a bunch of old articles and things, and I'd like to put it together somehow, maybe um, on a website or uh, some other means to kind of just give more attention to the story and to Claire and, and what happened in that piece of history. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. <laughs>